Good morning. I am glad to be here. I hope each of you is glad to be here as well. I hope that this past week you've been able to focus on God and His grace in your life, His undeserved favor and blessing in your life. And it's been my hope this week, it's been my prayer that this week you've been able to focus on that grace. Because as we learned last week, and the video reiterated this morning, it's all about him. It's all about his character. God is a gracious God, and his love is full, it's abundant, it's unconditional. And even in spite of our sin, and even because of our sin, God demonstrates his grace in our lives. His grace is abundant. But last week should have raised a question for you. It raised a question, didn't it? So this morning, we're going to look again at God's grace, and we're going to address the question that grace raises. But let's pray first and ask God to bless this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for each one of these people here. And Lord, we pray that you will know that we are here because we love you. We are here to worship you, and we are here to hear from you. So we pray that you will open our ears so that we can hear. You will open our eyes so that we can see. Lord, meet us here this morning and teach us what you would have for us to know. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now let's make sure that we're all on the same page this morning. We're in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, and recently we've been in the life of David. And we see, we've heard that David is a man after God's own heart. That David is the man in Scripture who has an undivided heart for God. But in 2nd Samuel chapter 11, we learn that David sins. And when David sins, he sins big. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and as a result of that, he tries to cover the sin, and he has Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed on the battlefield. Now, you might think that because David is the king of Israel, that he is going to get away with this sin. But David doesn't get away with the sin. God brings the heat. God brings calamity. God brings his foot down upon David and punishes him for his sin. David doesn't get away with his sin, but God is gracious. And God doesn't leave David in that sin. David repents, he confesses, he turns towards God, and God demonstrates his mercy to David. God forgives David of the sin. He wipes David's slate clean. The sin is no longer on his account. David doesn't get what he deserves. But God does more than demonstrate his mercy. God demonstrates his grace to David. God demonstrates his unmerited favor and blessing. David and Bathsheba have a son. The son who lives, his name is Solomon. Solomon is going to be the next king of Israel. Solomon is the man who God chooses to build the temple. Solomon is the man who is said to be the wisest man who ever lived. David and Bathsheba have a son, Solomon. This 
is grace. David gets what he doesn't deserve. David gets grace. And then last week, we looked and we saw how this grace of God works. We went to Romans chapter 5, verse 20, and there Paul writes, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where sins are added one by one, grace is multiplied in super abundance to super excess. That is the grace of God. And it's not only in Bible stories. It's in stories here, right here with people connected at Calvary Church. I told you the story of Michelle, a friend of mine. Michelle's been married twice. She was married twice, and before each of those marriages, she was pregnant. One of the marriages ended because of her infidelity. There was Phil. Phil has seven felony convictions, a record that stretches from California to Maine. He's in Jackson Prison. There was Kim. Kim's raised in a Christian home, but it's a home that focuses more on rules than relationship. So Kim decides to make her own choices, and she makes a poor choice, and she marries a man who's not a Christian. And then there's Jane. Jane lived a homosexual lifestyle. She claims that she was selfish, and she was an idolater. And in each one of these situations, in each one of these people's lives, they didn't get what they deserved. They got what they didn't deserve. They received God's grace. And it's not only those four people. It's you and it's me. Each one of us who are in Christ, each one of us who are followers of Jesus, each one of us who are Christians, we do not get what we deserve. We get what we don't deserve. We get God's grace, his unmerited favor and blessing in our life, a grace that is abundant, that is bountiful, that is undeserved, that is scandalous grace. But that raises the question, doesn't it? If God gives this grace that is abundant and bountiful and undeserved and scandalous and miraculous, where does that grace lead us? If God gives us this grace in spite of our sins and even because of our sins, he gives us this grace, what is my response going to be to the grace that God gives to me? Where? Does grace lead us? And you may think that there are two possibilities. The first possibility you may think is that if sin increased and grace increased all the more, then why don't I sin? Because if I sin, I'm just going to get more grace. Sin doesn't matter. My sin leads to grace. In fact, this past week, I had a number of people comment, a number of people concerned with last week's sermon, and they said, Tom, you preached that message, that's going to cause people to sin. So one of the options, one of the possibilities, if you will, is that grace may lead to sin. Or grace leads to righteousness and Christ-likeness. And that is the position, that is the truth 
that Paul is going to uphold. Grace leads to righteousness and Christ-likeness. Take your Bibles, Pew Bible, or your regular Bible. Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 6, page 799. Romans chapter 6, page 799. And Paul is going to answer the question, where does grace lead us? Now, Paul recognizes. Paul recognizes that what he has just written in Romans 5.20 is scandalous. He's writing to a people then, and he's writing to a people now who like the idea of a set of rules, what the Bible calls the law. These people like the idea of a set of rules that they can follow in order to earn their righteousness before God. And we often act like that, don't we? We often act like we can earn our righteousness before God. If I just make the right decision, if I just do the right thing, then God is going to approve. Then God is going to give me his grace. Then God is going to be happy. And on the other side of the coin, if, boy, if I don't make the right decision, then God is going to be really angry. God is going to be upset, and he's going to remove his grace. He's going to remove his favor from me. You know what this is like, don't you? you, you sometimes you white-knuckle your way through your 15-minute quiet time in the morning, and you think to yourself, oh, I got, if I, if I just, if I just get through this quiet time, I know that God is going to show me his grace. He is going to bless me today. My day is going to be a great day. But oh man, if I don't, what if I only do seven and a half minutes? God's going to be angry with me. He's going to remove his favor from me. He's not going to bless me. You see, Many of us here this morning, many of us who have been Christians for a long time, we do the things that we do because we think that if we don't follow the rule or we don't follow the rules, then God's grace isn't bigger enough to cover us or to apply to us. And Paul says, that's not the way this thing works. Paul says that righteousness before God, that rightness in God's eyes, only comes when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Nothing that I did, it's what Christ did. And so when Paul writes where sin increased and grace increased all the more, he knows what he's doing. He is turning the system upside down, or, or maybe I should say he's turning the system right side up. Paul knows what he's doing, and he knows what's coming next. Paul anticipates the question. He knows what the critics are going to say. So he asks the question rhetorically right off the bat. Look at what he says in Romans 6.1. Because he's answered, if we get more grace when we sin, hey, let's sin. So Paul steps right up and addresses that. Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase. That's the question, isn't it? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may, may, may increase? In that phrase here, go on sinning, that refers to habitual sin. It doesn't refer to a sin now and then or maybe one sin here and one sin there. It refers to a pattern of sin or habitual sin. There's a Phillips paraphrase of this verse and I like how it reads. It says, Shall we sin to our heart's content and see if we can exploit the grace of God? Shall we sin to our heart's content and see if we can exploit 
the grace of God. Well, on one hand of the spectrum, on one end of the spectrum, there's the law keepers, the people that really want to follow the law and they think they can earn their righteousness. On the other side of the spectrum, there are the antinomians. The antinomians, it's a big word, it's kind of a seminary word, but it's important to understand here. An antinomian, anti-against, nomos law, it's a person who is against the law. A person that says, it doesn't matter what I do because God's going to forgive me anyway. It doesn't matter if I follow the law because God will make it right. That's an antinomian. And unfortunately, the church, whether consciously or unconsciously, is filled with, filled with antinomians. Think about it. Have you heard people say, you know, I know what God says, but I just want to be happy? Or you've heard people say, why does it matter if I do this or that? Because God's just going to forgive me anyway. An antinomian perverts grace. An antinomian, antinomianism, or any other belief that, cause, that doesn't cause us to become more like Christ in character and in practice is not biblical Christianity. That's why Paul asks here, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, Paul doesn't leave us hanging for too long. Look at verse 2. Right away, we see Paul's highly emotional response, and you sense his outrage by the question, his blunt response. Look what he says. By no means. It's a strong interjection, and it can be translated, may it never be, perish the thought. Some of you may be looking at the King James Version. It says what? God forbid in the strongest terms possible, Paul is saying, no, you do not go on sinning so that grace may increase. This is impossible. This is not, this is unthinkable. You can't go on sinning so that grace may increase. It's absurd for a follower of Jesus to persist in sinning just to get more grace. So after making that strong introductory statement, he seems to return to logic and he explains himself in the second half of verse 2. Look what he says. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, I want you to look at the phrase, he died, we died to sin. And underline that word, died. Probably shouldn't do that in the church Bible. But in your Bible, underline the word, died. Because it's key to understanding this whole chapter. It's key to understand living the Christian life. And notice the tense that the word is in. What tense is that word in? Past tense. We died to sin. It's not in present tense. We are dying to sin. It's not in future tense. We will die to sin. It's not in the imperative, die to sin. It's not an exhortation, you will die to sin. It's in the past tense. We died to sin. The simple truth is, is that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, you have already died to sin. It's a past event. You have died to sin. But what does it mean to have died to sin? 
It means that you have been set free from the ruling power of sin in your life. It means that that sin is no longer your master. You are not a slave to sin. You have died to sin. It's in the past. Does that mean that you will never? No, you will sin. But it is not habitual. It is not your continued practice. It is not of your nature because you have died to sin. It's in the past. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot sin and be happy. That's right. Sin and being a Christian do not go together. You can sin. You can sin, but you will not be happy. And if you are a Christian and you choose to sin, remember you're free not to sin, but if you choose to sin as a Christian, one of three things is going to happen. You can write this down. Number one, it won't work. You as a Christian can choose to sin, but number one, it won't work. You may sin, but it will not make you happy. In fact, it will cause discontent. It will make you uncomfortable. It will make you feel less, you will feel disconnected. Because as a Christian, you are not able to continue in sin. It won't, the envy, the anger, the malice, all of the things that you were able to do in the past, the gossip, all of the things that you were able to do in the past that kind of made you happy, will, don't work. They won't make you happy anymore. Amen. You will experience discontentment. So number one, it won't work. Number two, God will stop you. Now, God will not stop you from sinning. You may sin, but God will stop you from continuing in that sin. God will discipline you, and he will do it in one of two ways. Way number one is he will make your life so miserable that you will cry out for his mercy and forgiveness to get you out of the misery. Or number two, he will end your life prematurely. God will not allow you as a Christian to remain in sin. It won't work. God won't allow it. Third, if you, continue, if you sin and you continue and remain in your sin, did you hear what I said? If you sin and you continue in that sin, you remain in that sin, you were never saved in the first place. You are not a Christian. What I mean by that is if you sin, you remain in that sin and you do not feel the pull, the tug of the Holy Spirit calling you back. If you do not feel discontentment from that sin, if God is not calling you to repentance, if you do not feel a conviction in your heart, then you're not a Christian. And the reason is, is because your sin is in the past. You have died to sin, past tense. It is no longer your master. It no longer controls you. You are free to make the right choice. So when we look at our possibilities, when we look at those possibilities, we see that there actually are not two possibilities because grace cannot lead to sin. Grace, therefore, if it cannot lead to sin, therefore, grace can only lead to righteousness 
and Christ-likeness. So when Paul says where sin increased and grace increased all the more, he knows the answer. You can't stay in your sin. So the more grace is not going to lead you back to sin. It leads you to righteousness and Christ-likeness. So now if you would, he's going to develop. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Look at what he says. Or do you not know? He's going he's to bang this home. Or do you not know? And the word know here means understanding. Are you walking around with no understanding of this? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul is going to reinforce the truth that we're dead to sin. We have died to sin. It's in our past. And he's laying the groundwork for the next point that he's going to make. Do you not know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you were identified, you were baptized with him. And that word baptized here does not respond to our baptism, to immersion in water. It re references identification. Do you not know that when Jesus went to the cross, you were identified with him? It's as if when each of us came to Christ, it's as if we were miraculously placed back 2,000 years ago and put on the cross with Jesus where he bore our sin, where he paid our debt, and what happens at that point is we died to sin. Past tense. It's in the past. And therefore, the old me is gone. The old sinner Tom is gone because I identified with Christ on the cross and died there with him. Amen. So how can a follower of Jesus Christ go back and live in their sin? They can't because at that point of identification with Christ, something on the inside happens, something on the inside changes, and now you are dead to sin and look what happens next. Not only am I dead to sin, but now I am alive in Jesus. Look at verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism, identification, into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Amen. It says we had to die with him. Look at that little phrase, in order that, in order that we could have new life. In other words, a comes before B. I have to first put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ. When I put my faith and trust in him, I'm identified in him in his death on the cross, and that sinner part of me dies. That has to happen in order that I have new life. And this word new here, it's not just a little, it's a small word, but it has, it's qualitatively brand new and exciting. This is a big deal, and this is something that should excite every one of us because for today, tomorrow, for the rest of our lives, we should recognize that we are dead to sin. We have died to sin. It's in the past. Does that mean I can't sin? No, I will sin. I do sin. I make bad choices. But that nature is gone. It is in the past. And I am now free in Christ to make the right choices. And I have, as a result of that, I have new life. But what does it really mean to have new life? Take your Bibles and turn to page, Church Bible 824, Galatians 2.20. 
Galatians 2.20. What does it mean to have new life? It means that we have a new identity. Look at how Galatians 2.20 mirrors what Paul has just written in Romans 6, 1 through 4. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We are identified with Christ in his death. When he went to the cross and he was crucified, I was crucified with him there. I no longer live. Now I have new life because Christ lives in me. I have a new identity because I am dead to sin. This means that although we sin, we are no longer sinners. Did you hear what I just said? Although we sin, we are no longer sinners. We are saints. Each and every one of us who has put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ are now identified as a saint. All throughout the New Testament, Paul identifies Christians as saints. It is his favorite term of identification for the Christian. He uses it about 60 times, and he's not referring to some dead old guy who's passed away, who was really pious, and now has been canonized. It's not St. Augustine or St. Patrick. It's every one of us who are in Christ. We are saints. And do you understand how this makes all the difference in the world? Sinner is an identity. Saint is an identity. If I am a sinner, what am I going to do? Sin. But if I am a saint and God increases his grace in my life, if I am a saint, that is going to motivate me to more righteousness and to Christ-likeness because that is what grace does. We are saints. Yep. Have you ever heard people say, I'm a sinner saved by grace? <laughs> have you ever people say that? Oh, yeah. I'm sure some of you have said it. I've said it. It's true, but it's the wrong focus. I am a saint. Uh-huh. Right. Each one of you who are in Christ, you are saints. Yes. Amen. And it matters because sinners sin because they're sinners. Saints, though, we're saints because of the grace of God in our lives, his unmerited favor and blessing in our lives. Recently, there was a guy, uh, named Chris, and he came in to meet with one of the pastors here at Calvary. And he came in, and his, his life was messed up. Chris was making tons of poor choices. Things were not going well. He's trying to kind of hold it all together, but it's falling apart. So he meets with the pastor here at Calvary. And they begin to talk about identity, about who Chris is in Christ. And they go through scripture and they're speaking of identity and they're looking at the passages that talk about who Chris is because he's a Christian. 
And Chris was able to identify and speak every one of the Christian identities in Scripture except for, I am a saint. Over and over, he was encouraged, Chris, just say it. Just say, I'm a saint. And Chris would try, but he, he could not get the words out of his mouth. He could not proclaim that he was a saint. He would say, no, 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 I'm a sinner. I'm just a sinner, and that's all I'm ever going to be. And for 45 minutes, this pastor and Chris discussed, they talked, they prayed. The pastor encouraged, Chris, you're a saint. Say it. Just say it. And eventually, Chris says, I am a saint. And to say that the change in the room was immediate would be an understatement. Amen. Chris was discouraged. He felt beat up. He felt overwhelmed. He was tired. There was a darkness in the room, an oppression in the room. But then Chris says, I am a saint. And immediately, there was a light that entered the room. Chris was filled with an energy. His voice became more confident and firm, and he recognized in his core that he was not a sinner. He's a saint. And it all happens because of a recognition of change of identity. Chris is no longer a sinner. He is a saint. And for each one of us here who are in Christ, you are no longer sinners. You are dead to sin. Amen. Sin is dead. It's in your past. Amen. Right. Yes, you will sin. You will make mistakes. And God will be right there to do what? To give you more grace. Why does he give you more grace? So you can become more righteous. Uh -huh. So you can become more Christ-like. Grace cannot lead to sin. Grace can only lead to righteousness and Christ-likeness and new life. A life that is big, a life that is exciting, a life that is wonderful. Think about Michelle, my friend. Two marriages, they end, one because of her own infidelity. She acknowledges that she made poor choices, that she was distant from God. Yet God comes down with his grace and showers it upon her. And now today, Michelle, husband, children, great family, a job in which she serves Christ daily. Big, exciting, wonderful. Why? Because God's grace increased all the more and she is no longer a sinner and she knows it because now she is a saint. Phil, seven felony convictions. Rap sheet across the United States, he's in Jackson prison. And God reaches down and turns the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And now Phil today, he has a wife, he has two houses, he has a dog. And when he writes his letter to us, he says, guys, I need to know how to better share with my workers at the shop the truth of Jesus and what he's done in my life. Big, exciting, <laughs> wonderful. You see, Phil knows he's no longer a sinner. Amen. Phil is a saint. Amen. 
He has new life. And Kim, Kim grows up in the home. She Christian home, but big rules, not much relationship. She marries the guy who's not a Christian, but now God's grace comes in. Her husband receives Jesus. Her children follow the Lord. Her grandchildren follow Christ. If I were to put her up here, if I were to introduce you, you to her, she is a picture of God's grace. Why? Because she knows she's not a sinner. She is now a saint. And she demonstrates the grace that God showed her to all those around her. Because she knows her identity. Jane. A homosexual relationship, selfishness, idolatry. Yet God demonstrates his grace. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Jane knows she was a sinner, but that is in the past. She is now a saint. And she is living a life, she has a passion for the orphan. She has adopted two children. She is pushing orphan care issues. She is going back into the homosexual community and loving on them for Jesus' sake. That is a life that is big, exciting, and wonderful. All because where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Grace can never cause sin. Grace only causes sin an increase in righteousness and Christ-likeness. I want each of you to know this morning, in the bottom of your heart, I want each of you to know beyond all doubt that God is a God of grace. And his love for you is full, is free, and is unconditional. And where sin increased... Grace increased all the more. So you are no longer sinners. To all the saints of Calvary Church who have experienced God's mercy and grace, grace and peace to you. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for the time that we've had to worship and to hear from you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. And it is clear that only a God like you could put this all together. Lord, we thank you that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. We thank you that you are a God of mercy and of grace. And Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning that we would be a people who know and experience your grace. And in turn, we would be a people who demonstrate your grace. Lord, in your grace, we pray that you will make us more righteous and make us more like Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.